All right, Romans 6, 7, and 8 are uh, the chapters that help us recognize the victory that's in Christ Jesus, that we are now dominators over sin, that he has redeemed us from sin, that we're dead to sin. Now, 7 is going to, we're going to talk about how to, uh, the struggle that we recognize, and then 8, chapter 8 is going to tell us how to make sure that we apply all the truth and overcome in reality. You know, Christians... We really like everything to be final. Like we, okay, so is that, is that it? So just tell me what it, tell me the answer and that's all I, just end, end it please. Uh, but that's not really how it works. So like, even though you're saved, you still have to work out your salvation. I mean, we wish we could have just got saved and then boom, gone to heaven. Okay, maybe not some of you. Maybe got saved and then totally freed from every temptation. Right, we wish it was like that. We want to just done with it, right? But it's not like that. You got to get saved, then you got to work out your salvation. You, you got to get sanctified, and, and, and then you got to work out your sanctification. You got to de- grow in sanctification. So there, there is some uh, training that's necessary, some teaching, some discipling, some understanding that you need if you're going to grow up and be strong in Christ. And so I, I know we wish that it was all like, I wish I would just uh, never have anything to do with the devil again. It's like, I wish the devil would, you know, I'm a Christian. He, sh- he knows I have authority. He should never mess with me again. Pray for me that he will never mess with me again. You ever thought that just pray for me, he will never mess with me again. And the prayer would be, okay, I pray that you die. Because the only way to never be messed with by the devil is that you're gone. While you're in the earth, you do have to put up with him. Uh, but you do have to learn how to overcome the devil and the flesh and the world. All right, so uh, there's there's stuff to learn here. All right. So chapter seven, verse one, do you not know brethren for I speak to those who know the law that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now he's talking to people that know the law, people that, because back then, you know, Jews had, were in proximity and they'd all been under the law for hundreds of years. And so he's speaking to them uh, that know the law. The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. And he's talking about husbands and wives here. Verse two, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law. So she is no adulteress though she has married another man. Now, verse one through three is an analogy. This is not a teaching on marriage and remarriage. It's simply an analogy for the rest of the chapter. He's taking something of the law, husband and wife being united together forever, until one of them dies, then you're free. He's using that as the analogy for verse four, which is, therefore, my brethren, You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. See that? We have become dead to the law. If you don't die to the law, you can't marry Christ. If you try to keep the law and marry Christ, you're an adulterer. Pretty amazing, right? And so in case you may not understand what this law thing is, it's the 10 commandments that, that Moses received on Mount Sinai, plus the other hundreds of commands, 603 other commands that were given to the nation of Israel. Uh, and part of that law is still alive because it included do not kill or do not murder and do not covet and do not commit adultery. And, and it had some moral commands in there that are still active today. Yes. But that law had stipulation for the nation of Israel that covered their entire lives. It covered all, all of their civil duties, civic duties, all of their, had civil law in there. Like if a crime is committed, uh, you know, that's where you get eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. 
That's where punishment was divvied out based on the law. We're not under that part of the law anymore. Now, a lot of those are good principles that many countries can adopt, but we're not under that part of the law. You know, if a, if a, if a rebellious teenager, really a rebellious son uh, in the family is taken out to the street and stoned, aren't you glad we're not using that law? Some parents are thinking, I don't know. <laughs> it's pretty strenuous showing the, the severity of wickedness and rebellion, which is as the sin of witchcraft. So all of that is under the civil law, but then you also have ceremonial law, which all of their ceremonies, their feasts, all of their sacrifices, all of their offerings and their burnt offerings and their peace offerings and all this stuff that had to happen in the temple, all of that was ceremonial law, and that was simply symbolic of Christ. Every aspect of that ceremonial law has something to do with Jesus Christ and the new covenant. It was physical. They didn't understand that it was a symbol. They were just following what the law said. But now that Christ has come, we're no longer under the law. Now the morality of the law is written in our hearts and that's why we're, we're still holy people. And we're actually more holy than ever anybody under the law because we're alive. Okay, so just know that the, that's what he's talking about when it says the law. Uh, and in this case, he's using that as the analogy that, that we must be dead to the law in order to really marry Christ. Okay. Now, do I need to talk about verse one through three at all to help you understand about husbands and wives and, and not getting divorced? Do I need to go through that a bit? Okay, I will. All right. Let me, just, let me just read a couple of scriptures because it's a long teaching. We've got it online, uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, there's lots of questions on that because so many people are already divorced. So many people are already remarried. Am I in sin? Oh my gosh, what do I do? Let's not go too far with it. Uh, just realize this, that, that God created marriage for two people to stick together, okay? And so any divorce and remarriage should never be, well, I don't like him anymore. I don't love him anymore. I just want somebody new. Uh, there is an aspect where you can divorce but not get remarried. I mean, nobody ever wants that. They're like, at first they do. I don't, I'm never going to get married again. And then six months later, ah, I found them. It's like, wait a second. You, you got you to gotta really take some analysis here, analysis before, you get to, before you're really going to go through this thing. Because there are stipulations. Jesus, he cares, right? It's not about you just fulfilling what you want to do on the earth. You, you do owe your life in obedience to the Lord. Here's what Jesus said. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Whoever marries her is divorced, commits adultery. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband be dead, she's at liberty to be married to whomever she will, only in the, but only in the Lord. You can be married to whoever you will, as only in the Lord. So there's all these stipulations. If you're a Christian, you can get married, but only if they're saved. And then there's another one, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. God would prefer you stick together. But if your spouse is determined to leave you or does not want to be with you or makes life so difficult in order to not be with you, you're not under bondage. So there's a moment where, I mean, there's a case where the person is divorced, but they're not under bondage because they tried. They tried to stick it out. They, they, they made peace. It was their spouse that left. You can't force somebody to stay. So you're not under bondage in that case. And, and all this really has to do between you and the Lord. You know, you know, you just got to be honest with what you know in your heart. Is it you or is it them? Where, where are you in this? Are you committed till the very end? Are you going to work it out even though it's hard? You know, a single person always thinks, man, life would be so much easier if I get married. And then a married person thinks, man, if I could just get divorced, it'd be so much easier. Okay? It's just the way things are. And so don't ever get, don't ever get into a marriage and all of a sudden it feels so difficult and, and strained. Man, I got to get divorced. No, no. You got to stick it out. No, no. You got to work it out. No, you got to love them more. 
No, no, you're not, you must not be doing your part. That's never the thought. The thought is they're not doing their part. No, you're not doing your part. Something happened, you're not doing your part. You, you got all upset and ticked off and annoyed and, and offended and, and bitter, and now you're not doing your part. Now you're not doing your part. Now you want out. Now it'll be easier. Uh, that's not how it works. That's not how God designed it. And so that's why we do have scriptures. You need to learn them and put them together so that it fences you into the right action and right course of life, okay? So you don't have to make all these mistakes and then get forgiven and live with guilt and all that kind of stuff. God has called us to peace. He would prefer that you work it out and stick together. Even in the severest cases, if you can. But that's for another day. I just wanted to mention that there are some requirements here. Verse four, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. Notice the purpose, married to another so that we can bear fruit to God. You got to let go of the the, the uh, bondage of the law and the curse of the law so you can bear fruit to God. And this is where some of the churches of old, they kept preaching the law so hard and preaching really the curse that if you don't watch out, like how many of you grew up in churches like that? Boy, look at the hands, look at the hands. If you don't, if you don't watch out, God's going to, what's he going to do? He sent Jesus to save me. He's not going to re- he's not going to kill me because he let Jesus get killed. He was my substitute. He took my whipping. What's he going to do? Whip me? No, he's not going to whip me. Jesus took my whipping. So when you preach heavy law, uh, people cannot bear fruit. And that's why those type of denominations of old are so mean. They're, they still exist today and they're mean. They're not happy. They're not full of love. You, you got to really crack them open to find the love of God. Like when you meet, when you meet some of these folks, you're like, oh, you're a Christian. They're like, yeah. Oh man, where, where do you go to church? Are you filled with the spirit? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, glory to God. Glory. They're, they're looking at you like, but you're not wearing the right clothing. They're, they're under carnal law uh, and they're not healthy. Or it's like, yep, yeah, I'm a Christian. When do you go to church? On Saturday or Sunday? It's like, you're not bearing any fruit. You're, you're just an old stuck in the mud. The reason that we got to marry another so we can bear fruit to God. There is a goal. <clears throat> Think about it. Married to another carries some high responsibility, doesn't it? Are you really married to Christ? Listen, if you're not saved yet, then... The Lord wants you to be saved. He wants you to devote your life to Jesus, bow to Jesus as Lord. In this scripture, it's, it's compared to marrying Christ. There's some high responsibility when you marry somebody and let them in your house. You let the Lord in your house, there's a responsibility there. It's going to change the way you act, change the way you talk, change the way you walk, change the way you look, change the way everything. Married to another carries some high holy responsibility, doesn't it? This is not just get saved and then no law. Blah! <clears throat> Praise the Lord. Uh, now we, we take our faith to a much greater degree than of some believing sinner. Haven't you met people that believe in Jesus, but man, they're just, they don't look like it. You know somebody that believes in Jesus but doesn't look like it? So they're a believing sinner. They don't look like you're married to Christ. Married to Christ? <clears throat> of course, they wouldn't because they haven't read the Bible. They hadn't studied. The, they hadn't. Anyway, so we, we, we're called to a higher standard because we're married to Christ. We're called to a higher standard than the Jews were. Because we're saved, because we're alive on the inside, because we're cleansed from sin, because we're filled with the Spirit, because we're empowered by the Holy Ghost, we're called to a much higher standard than the, than the Jews were who had to take the lamb and go to the temple and offer it as a sacrifice and get the blood sprinkled everywhere. We're called to a much higher standard than that. 
That would be easy compared to what we do. Like, oh, it's what, what day is it? Oh, day of atonement. Okay, get the lamb. Get, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Let's go. Put the lamb in there. Okay. Okay, they sacrifice for us. Okay, let's go play. That's a lot easier than living unto God every day. A lot easier than living unto uh, the conviction of your own spirit. Verse 5. For when we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Now that's interesting. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Sinful passions, you understand that. Aroused by the law. at work in our members to bear fruit to death? How could it be aroused by the law? It just simply means that if I told you uh, not to cross your legs, you're gonna sit there and go, I can do that if I want to. You're told uh, to not do something and then you tell a kid not to do something, what, what do they want, they're gonna. First thing, they, well, I'm gonna do it anyway. I remember a story my friend told that his mother, uh, his wife's mother uh, had, had a rule, you know, don't run, don't run with scissors. She just harped on that, don't run with scissors. As soon as her mom left the house, she grabbed those scissors and ran around the house. Why would you do that? Because the law stimulates, it, it, it arouses the sinful nature. Being told not to do something makes you kind of want to do it. Don't watch that. Why? What am I missing? And that's all he's saying here. Uh, because sin exists without law, but people don't realize it. And then as soon as law comes, it almost actually makes you want to sin more. Don't look back when you leave Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife has to look back. Verse 6. Or we could put it in the Jewish, in the Jewish example. Okay, so one of the laws uh, under the law of Moses was you cannot travel more than a Sabbath day's journey. So they could not travel on the Sabbath day. Couldn't do any work, couldn't travel really. I mean, you could walk from here to there, but there was a limit to how far you could go. And so being told that, think about how the teenagers would react. Hey, let's sneak off and go further than we're supposed to. Let's sneak up the mountain tonight. Anyway, just an example I figured probably happened. Verse 6. Doesn't say, the Bible doesn't say they did that, but I have a feeling. Verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law. That's underlined in my Bible by me. But now we have been delivered from the law. Do you realize you've been delivered from the law? Not the morality of the law. You're not delivered from thou shalt not murder. But you, you, you don't need the law to tell you not to murder. That's, you're still delivered from the law. You don't need a piece of paper. You don't need a scroll. Here's your do's and don'ts. Because you know in here. You know all the valid things already in your spirit. You don't need this constitutional law to tell you what to do and what not to do. You've been delivered from the law. <clears throat> We've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Wow. So we're not running after sinners with the law saying, stop doing this and here, stop doing that, stop doing this. We don't even run after Christians like that. When you get saved, we don't then hand you the list of, okay, here's how you have to act. That's not very effective. Now, a lot of old timers have done it that way. That's not the best way to disciple somebody. You have to help them learn and get it into their heart. And then in that is a lot of instruction from the Lord on how to live your life, but it's by the Spirit, in the Spirit, with the Spirit, 
not just you controlling your outside. All right. So what you're, what you're going to see is this struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Your flesh is one thing. Uh, controlling that by your spirit is another thing. Uh, hold your place here. Notice it says, in the newness of, serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Go to 2 Corinthians 3. I just want to remind us of this. 2 Corinthians 3. <clears throat> he said it, it very similarly. Verse 6, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Paul's saying we are ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So we're not here to just tell you do's and don'ts and remind you of the law of Moses. We're here to minister the spirit to you. That's where you're going to get the strength and power over sin. Verse 7, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which, was, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? What's he saying here? He says, verse seven, the ministry of death written and engraved on stones. What was that? What's the ministry of death? What was written and engraved on stones? Two commandments. Uh, and it's called the what? The ministry of death is the 10 commandments. So if you want to minister death to the world, just show the 10 commandments everywhere. How many of you want that ministry? So if you want to minister death, hang the Ten Commandments all over the courthouses. That's right. I have to pick on it a bit because it's just one of those ignorant things Christians did, thinking we're serving God. Look, if you're going to put the Ten Commandments everywhere, you better put John 3.16 at the bottom or the top. Let's go to the top. John 3.16. Let's go John 13.34. Let's... Let's put Romans 10, 9, 9 and 10, 9 and 10. Let's put some new covenant, get saved scriptures along with your 10 commandments. Or all you're going to do is minister death. Trying to control people's outward. People say, well, it's better than nothing. Letting all these people just do anything they want. Well, not on the spiritual side. On, on controlling society side, sure, you need some laws. But it's not spiritual enough to really affect anything. I would never be satisfied if we just controlled people's outward activity and left them dead on the inside. So if you have opportunity to hang anything anywhere, make sure you got some gospel in there so you can change the hearts of people and get them out of hell. So the ministry of death written engraved on stones was glorious. Now that was glorious. So the Ten Commandments were glorious. Right? I mean, we saw how glorious it was on the movie with Charlton Heston. <laughs> it was so glorious that they couldn't even look at Moses. The glory was shining off of him because of this experience with the Ten Commandments. If that was glorious, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit be, be glorious? So what you're getting here is more glorious than what Moses got. What's on your face is more glorious than what was on Moses' face. But I thought Moses was something special. You're something special. Moses wasn't even born again. Moses wasn't saved. Moses didn't have the Holy Spirit in him to abide. You got to value yourself. By valuing who you are in Christ, you value Christ. Verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. The ministry of condemnation was the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the, the Ten Commandments plus. The, that's called the ministry of condemnation. And it's called the ministry of death. How many of you want that minute? We're going to start a ministry. We're going to call it the ministry of condemnation. Therefore, you, you better stick with new covenant principle. You better, you better stay with new, co new covenant uh, instruction, understanding, and 
emphasis. You can refer to the Old Testament, refer to the Old Covenant. You can learn everything there is, and you need to. You need to learn everything there is in the Old Testament. You need to learn everything there is. Uh, you don't want to get bogged down in it. Like, you could get bogged down in learning what the feast did. I mean, I've learned, the, I've learned all the, the Jewish feasts for, you know, probably several times. I can't remember any of it because it's not applicable to me. Because Christ replaces all of it. Don't need to know all those little details. I understand the symbology of it. And it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. But on the other hand, I'm experiencing the reality of it. Like if I was to go look at the blueprint of my Ford Bronco. Yeah, that's Ford Bronco, all right. Look, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me roll this thing up, put it in the closet so I can go drive my real deal. It's like that, that that's, yeah, that's nice. I see, oh, okay, I guess, oh, yeah, yeah, I see the dimensions. I don't, don't really need that for practical knowledge. I got the real deal sitting out there and just hop in it and go use it. I got, I got Christ. I don't need the blueprint for him. I got the reality of Christ within. I've got the peace and joy and righteousness in my heart. I don't need to go look at all the details of predicting him. I can, I can, and I can go enjoy it for a moment, but it doesn't bring life application to me. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. All right, stop there. Go back to Romans. There's much more to say about that. We're not trying to put down the Old Testament. We're just trying to explain how this new covenant is way more glorious. Way more glorious. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now he's speaking as an, he's talking about before he got saved. Paul's talking about while he was a Jew, uh, studying to be a good Jewish leader, he wouldn't have known the detail of covetousness unless the law had told him not to covet. Make sense? Now we've already read in Romans chapter one that really deep down we we all know what's right and wrong to a degree in our own heart. But he's saying, the law, just what the, just what the Bible says, that the law detailing all these stipulations, uh, it, it puts you there. It, it shows you what sin is, makes you feel guilty. Call, it arouses you. Oh, now I know exactly what to do and not to do. I think I want to do it. Verse eight, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. That's that strange thing that we deal with. You make a law unto yourself, you have a law, and it's just something about it. You want to do it. It, It's like, what, what are they trying to keep me from? Sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. Thinking about what I'm not supposed to do all the time causes you to think about it too much and plant seed about it too much. Verse uh, 9. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That's a little strange way to say it. I, I have a feeling what he's saying here is when he got saved, he was alive. Like the moment you get saved, you're alive. And then as you live your life, whether it's a week, a month, or a year, or 10 years, all of a sudden you, you, you realize you've stumbled and disobeyed a commandment and, all of, and you feel guilty and sin revived and then you die. You fail. Think about it. How many times has a new Christian gotten saved and, and filled with the Spirit or so excited about the Lord's gotten delivered, just gotten so thrilled. They're enjoying their salvation. They run home. They tell their family about Jesus. They run to work. They tell their people about Jesus. I got saved. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves everybody. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And then three months later, they sin. They get tempted. They fall into sin. They do something they know they shouldn't do. And they come back to church like this. What happened? Sin revived, and now they fail, fail, like they failed, they died. And it's like, 
I thought I was a Christian and here I went and did something wrong. I think that's what, I think that's what he's saying. And you see it all the time. Well, that's why a Christian needs to learn that they are still saved, that they're still righteous, that they're still accepted, that they're still approved by God, that Jesus Christ is still in them, that everything's okay. And all it takes is for them to admit their sin to God and then have faith that he will cleanse them from unrighteousness and put, pick their head back up and realize, realize, yes, this is how Christians live their life. We have a perpetual forgiveness from God because his blood ever speaks for me and it ever speaks for you. And so we can live our life freed from condemnation, which Romans 8 verse 1 is going to say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus, even if you sinned. Verse 10, and the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. That's a way to say what I usually try to instruct that there's so many instructions for Christians in the New Testament, so many things that we're supposed to add into our lifestyle. I mean, you can't even, people talk about, you know, obeying the commands and not sinning. It's like, you don't even, you don't even know what a sin really is. Did you know that being rude is a sin? You learned that? Here you thought you were being a good Christian and you realize, oh, love is not rude. Now for the rest of your life, you have to ask for forgiveness every time you're rude. Being irritable is a sin. Being jealous is a sin. Being bitter is a sin. It's like, oh my God. How, how you, I, I can't handle all these. <laughs> Pastor Joni always says, you know, that's why you don't want to know everything on day one. You'll be overwhelmed at all of your problems. You need to take it slowly. You'll see all your failures soon enough. Because <laughs> there's plenty of it. So the commandment, and all, any commandment really, which we would think gives us life, and it does, it brings death. It makes you feel guilty. It convicts you, and you have to address it, and then you have to work it out. Verse 11, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. What's he saying? He's <laughs> you got to read it about 20 times and you'll start catching some things from it. Basically, the sin nature uh, is what we're fighting. The sin nature sometimes just takes us over and it's, it's disturbing. It controls, and it seems like, why am I struggling with this sin nature? Well, it's just how it is, living in the sinful body with sinful flesh. You have the Holy Spirit in your spirit to overcome it, and you have to. You have to learn how to win the battle of flesh versus spirit. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I want to do or what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. You ever felt like that? Most people have, can relate to this. What I want to do, I'm not doing. What I don't want to do, I keep doing. You know what, what's right, but you're still doing wrong. It's the struggle. And this is what Paul's going to address now. So he's recognizing, you know, I got saved. I thought it was great. But then all of a sudden the commandment came back and reminded me and now I died again. Verse 16, if then I do what I will not to do or what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. 
that the law is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but, but sin that dwells in me. All right, now let's look at that. When, he, when we do what we know is wrong, it's not really me doing it. My spirit does not want to do it. But I'm still doing it. Why would that be? It's because my flesh is a little stronger than my spirit. If you're going to give in to sin, it's because your flesh is stronger than your spirit. So it's your flesh that's doing it, not you. The real you is not your flesh. Your flesh is going to end up in a coffin somewhere. That's not the real you. Your flesh is going to end up dusty. That's not the real you. It's going to end up corrupted. That's not the real you. The real you is on the inside of that flesh. We can say the flesh is just the earth suit. It's just your costume for earth life. And it's going to go away. So it, but your flesh has, has this tie to the earth. It's made of dirt. The earth is dirt. And, and the, the earth is corrupt. Sin has cursed the earth. So that's where we get the sin nature from. It's in our flesh. Verse 18, for I know that in, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I, don't, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. He's just describing this flesh versus spirit conflict that we recognize in our lives. Now, if I do what I will not to do or don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Or we could say the sin nature that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. Have you ever noticed that? That you want to do good, right? You want to be a wonderful Christian. You want to be a wonderful son of God. You want to be a wonderful person. But your flesh is still stupid. That's all he's saying. It's the sin nature that's still stupid. It's the sin nature that still is embedded into your flesh. Stop there for just a second. Let me see if I can do this. Um, you know, this whole idea of it's not really me sinning. <laughs> Some people have taken that to the extreme and said, that it doesn't matter how you live your life on the outside because the real you is saved and, and loves God. So let your flesh just go do what it wants to do. That's what he's saying. No, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's saying that there is, a, there is a conflict here, but he's not saying just give in to your flesh and let it do what it wants. Really, your spirit needs to take over your flesh. Be stronger than your flesh. That's why fasting needs to be part of your life somehow. Whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, or annually, somehow you got to do some, something to overcome the strength of your flesh. Yes. So you got to practice it. You got to uh, not plant seed in your flesh, in your mind. You got to follow your, your spirit, follow the Holy Spirit. So there's all these techniques that we, we teach on. And we're going to go through that in Romans 8. You'll find some more technique on how to overcome your flesh and make sure you dominate your flesh. Right. It's like if you keep giving in to your flesh, it gets the strength. Like the, the fellow that said, you know, uh, somebody got saved. It was an the story is that it's an Indian chief who got saved. And uh, the missionary came back a year later uh, and he found the chief. He said, chief, how's it going? How's your first year in the Lord been? He goes, oh, big fight, big fight, big fight, big fight all the time, big fight. He said, no, 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 we're not supposed to fight. We're Christians. We're not supposed to fight. He said, no, big fight on the inside, on the inside. White dog, black dog, fighting, fighting, fighting all the time, fighting all the time, fighting all the time. And the missionary said, which dog wins? He said, whichever dog I feed the most. And that really explains, I mean, it's just a little quick example to, to show the flesh versus the spirit and that there's enmity and conflict between them. But this, this helps us understand 1 John. 1 John's got some scriptures in it that's confused a lot of people. Because it basically said, if you were really saved, you wouldn't sin. People are like, well, I guess I'm not saved. Like every Christian in the whole world is not saved. I'll quote the scriptures so that when you get there one day and you're reading it and you can study it, you know that there's answers for you. We don't have to turn there because we'll get stuck. 
I mean, it's, it's a couple hours teaching if you really want to go through it. But uh, 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Written to Christians. So all Christians have some sin. It doesn't mean you have to sin. It doesn't mean you sin every day. It doesn't mean you live a lifestyle of sinning. It just means there's some sin. 1 John 2, 1 says, I write these things so that you do not sin. John's writing to Christians saying, I'm writing you all these things so you don't sin. He's not saying if you do sin, you're going to hell. He's saying, I'm writing this so, so you don't sin. 1 John 3, 8, he who sins is of the devil. He who practices righteousness is of God. Okay. So that means every time you sin, you're of the devil? No, it's talking about the sin nature. It's talking about sinning in your spirit. If, if you sin willingly in your heart, then you're not really saved. If you don't feel any conviction, you're of the devil still. Your father is still the devil if you can willingly sin in your heart. Make sense? It's a barometer for you, but really, you're all in church on a Wednesday night. You're saved. And if you're not saved, you need to get saved. You need to say, Jesus, save my soul. I'll be my Lord. First John 4, 15 says, he who confesses that Jesus is, son, is the son of God, God abides in him. So we could just do it right now. Say, say this out loud. Say, Jesus is the son of God. And he's my Lord. Now God abides in you. That means you're saved. That means that you're not of the devil. 1 John 5, 18. Whoever is born of God does not sin. We know we're of God. Those are words that he used by the Spirit. We know we're of God. He who is born of God does not sin. But I sinned. Not, no, you didn't. Your flesh did. Your, stu your stupid sin nature that you haven't controlled did. The real you, you're born of God. You need to, you need to be able to put these scriptures, you need to let both books of the Bible exist. Both truths exist, okay? So we don't want to get legalistic. People have gotten so legalistic with some of these things, you cannot interpret one scripture by itself. It must be connected with all the other puzzle pieces puzzle pieces about a particular truth. Okay, uh, back here in uh, chapter 7. Uh, I had this question that I wanted to pose. How many, so, so here it is. It's like uh, we got the sin. I mean, we got the flesh versus spirit struggle. The flesh sins. What do we do? Well, we get forgiven. If any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from unrighteousness. So we just simply admit to God, we acknowledge to God every sin, right? Every time we blow it, every time you recognize you blow it, you just, Lord, sorry about that. Lord, I sinned again. I admit it. I admit it. I confess it. Sorry about that. I did that. Uh, forgive me. You, you, may, you may not remember them all, but... <laughs> Uh, bottom line is you acknowledge that you, man, you've blown it. You've blown it. And every time you do that, he'll forgive you. Amen. But then you have the question, but I've been doing it so long. But I've been asking forgiveness and I just keep doing it. I just keep doing it. And they want to feel more guilty. It's like, well, no, you're still forgiven. It's like you just did it once. It look, you think that you've done it so long, but God didn't remember any of those. He just remembers the last one. You need to recognize this is part of righteousness, and this is how you're going to live uprightly before God. Because if you allow yourself to start feeling so guilty because you're such a rotten repeater, you'll never have the strength to overcome it. So how many times will God forgive you? How many times will he forgive you? I mean, we do have a little insight in how many times, because Jesus commanded, Jesus instructed that if your brother sins against you, you forgive him seven times. Seven times in a day. In the other gospel, he says, 
I don't say seven times. Seven times 70. 490 times how many times you got to forgive your brother. Seven times in a day. I'll just take, I'll take the seven times in a day. He's not going to tell us to do something that he wouldn't do. He's not going to tell us to forgive our, our friend and our neighbor if God's not going to forgive us. Isn't that right? Seven times in a day times 365 days. That's, you know, over about 3,000. That's way more than 490 times. I'm going to take that one. The two ways he describes it seven times in a day and if he repent, forgive him. And so this is, that's more on the, you need to accept people's repentance when they repent. That if your brother, if, if, if your brother offends you, you tell him. And if he repent, you forgive him seven times a day. So spouses, you need to forgive your spouse seven times a day. Uh, if you want to count it, you can. Put the chart on the wall. <laughs> Bottom line is you need to forgive them. And then the next day you need to forgive them seven more times. And this is where, well, I know they're going to do it again. Yeah, I know. And, I know, and you're going to forgive them again. And so you can't get, you can't get uh, uh, fed up with forgiving people. God doesn't get fed up with you. He's long suffering with you. Long-suffering is part of his nature and part of our nature. Is you, you just keep putting up with them and you just keep forgiving them and they keep doing it and they keep they keep leaving the, 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 the dish on the thing and they keep doing this and they, they keep saying the wrong thing. They keep disrespecting you and they keep doing this and they keep not listening and they keep ignoring and they keep, and you just keep on forgiving them. 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 Like the winner, the winner in every marriage is the one who forgives the most. The winner in every marriage is not the one who wins the argument the most. It's the one who forgives the other the most. Praise the Lord. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So there's a law of God according to the inside of me. There's a law of God according to what's in the spirit. There's a law of God that's not on paper and it's not on outside video cameras that can be seen. It's the law on the inside of me. It governs me. It rules me. It rewards me. It convicts me. I don't need a judge to convict me on the outside. I got one on the inside. It's the law of God after the inward man where all the good stuff comes from. It's my conscience that guides me. It's the law that's been written in my heart that rules me. It's the spirit of God, him, God in me, who I yield to. That's the law you need to be concerned with. So you're not escaping, you know, any sort of morality or any sort of righteous obedience and lifestyle. No, no, no. You're just yielding to the, the one inside. It's the law of God after the inward man. That's where everything good comes from. And it's also where every bad thing can come from. Out of the heart proceed adulteries and murders and all the stuff you don't want in your life. Don't let it in there. So we've talked a lot about the heart, but we need to delight after the law of God in the law of God after the inward man. Verse 23, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Have you ever felt like that before? It's like, when am I going to stop? Who's going to deliver me? He's not saying there's no hope. He's going to answer you in the next scripture. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I, I, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So your flesh needs to be told what to do. And it's your spirit that needs to tell it. You don't need the preacher telling you what's wrong and what's right. You don't need a piece of paper even. You need your spirit. The inward man needs to tell you what to do. But for this to work, you got to get real honest. You got to get real sincere with God. 
Once you do it, you won't have to argue about what's a sin. You know it. People run off with their flesh, run off with their lusts, and want to uh, uh, act like it's okay. Justify themselves with every decision they make, and, and big time in relationships. Just do whatever you want. You, you're, you're not living according to the inward man. You know what's wrong and right. So you have to uh, understand the legality to get this right, to overcome, to win, to, to win this struggle that Paul, it's through Jesus Christ. It, it's through the Spirit. It's, it's by God, through Christ, in the Holy Ghost. And that's what Romans 8 is going to get us into. You'll, you'll see some solutions in there. It's real fun. But you have to first understand the legality that Christ defeated all evil power. Okay, the sin nature has been destroyed. That we are in Christ and we're safe. We're empowered. We're loved. Literally, we're in Christ. So think highly of yourself only because you're in Christ. Don't think lowly of yourself just because your flesh is pretty stupid. Uh, You've got to learn the confession of these truths. We did that in Romans 6, that uh, he that is dead is freed from sin. I died with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, Galatians 2.20. So you've got to confess these truths to make them realities in your heart. We're dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God Amen. through Christ. You've got to understand that you actually do have victory already and you are an overcomer by faith. We overcome by faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Recognize that this requires a disciplined life. Conviction and repentance and working out your salvation. It's a disciplined life we have to live. And notice it says, verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. Now the mind is not the, the word suchi. It's the word for soul. Uh, it's talking about your understanding, your reasoning faculties, that which you perceive. Uh, understanding those things of feeling and judging and determining. Um, the capacity that your soul has for spiritual truth. Perceiving divine things, knowing what's evil or what's good. So you're going to serve God with the inside of you. It's supposed to drive the outside of you. Make sense? Now, we're going to finish with just this one thought. Where do demons come in? Because sometimes people think that all your troubles are from demons and the devil. I didn't see anything in this whole passage about demons and devil. It's inward man versus outward man. It's spirit versus flesh. It's body versus the real you. That's your problem. People want to blame everything on the devil. We like to blame somebody. It's not us, somebody. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Serpent blamed the devil, probably. But there's no demonic stuff mentioned here because most of your struggle is with yourself. Okay? Uh, but, but the devil could get involved. So there is, it's, it's like when people get saved. They, you know, they want the devils cast out of them. Well, sometimes there might be some demons that need to get cast out. A lot of it, though, doesn't have to. Like, I, got, I came into the kingdom. I didn't have to get people. Nobody had to cast demons out of me. And I got delivered from all these sins and all this ridiculous. Just in an instant. Just came out of the water, and I was totally free. Nobody had to do any demon casting out. Uh, doesn't mean I didn't have something, but it just meant I didn't have to go through. Most of my troubles were myself. It was my bad habit. Right now, if you give yourself over to sin for a long time, the demons will come in. All right. And so sometimes people have cast demons out when they got saved or somebody cast them out and maybe there were demons there. Maybe not. Sometimes it seems to work just because you're repenting of all the stupid stuff you've done. Other times it could be demon oppression or demon possession, rulers of the darkness. So casting out is sometimes just don't treat it like a rule that every time you get somebody saved, they got to get demons cast out of them. If they're stuck, maybe they do. If they're weird, maybe they do. 
Demons are weird. That's how you know there's a demon. It's just something that's just almost unexplainably ridiculous, and you'll know it's a demon. Uh, but a lot of times what happens, it's the flesh, and if, you can, if your flesh stays in a bad rut, demons find it. Okay? I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, let's say this. Let's say you see a nice car, and, and you think to yourself, or you say out loud, I'm so jealous. Well, that wasn't a demon. That was the lust of your flesh. That was the lust of your eyes, right? Uh, or you see somebody that bought a brand new car, and you think, where'd they get the money for that? You've just sinned. Wasn't the devil. It was your covetousness. Now you're managing another person's money. Now you're judging someone else. You have no business in judging another man's servant. Covetousness. There's no demon involved. Uh, maybe telling a fib so you can win an argument. No demon involved. Just your little selfishness. Now if you give in to fibbing a lot, a lying spirit will come find a house to live in. So if you're a habitual liar, you might have a demon Uh, I mean, you got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. They're not necessarily demonic. You got lust in your flesh. You got lust in your eyes. You got pride of life. Now, if you keep giving in, the devil will find you and he'll have some fun. Demons want to experience life and they can only do it with a body. So if you find an overwhelming uh, temptation, it could be demonic. You need to take some authority and get out of that mess. On the other hand, don't plant the seed in the first place so that the devil can come live under your tree. <clears throat> a lot of times demons find the weakest, and that's why people on drugs and alcohol end up opening themselves up to de devils. You don't want to be inebriated. You'll get demons coming in. And that's why even sinners who have a strong constitution about themselves aren't demon-possessed. They're sinners, they're ruled by the unseen world in some way, but they seem to have a stable life. Why? Because the devil finds the weak-minded, find, finds a chinks in the armor, finds people with deep hurts, deep roots of issue and bitterness and stuff like that. So you don't know all that's in the spirit realm. They've tried to make movies of it and write books of it, but don't get too far involved in all that, Okay. It'll, you know, there's no system that you can learn in the spirit world to go start dealing with demons. If you find a demon, you cast it out. You'll know in the spirit. You'll have to know in the spirit and be led by the spirit. Demons do jump on marriages and cause conflicts daily, weekly. You know, how would you know? When, when y'all are arguing about nothing? I don't know. When there's great chaos for like almost no reason? When there's... Un, when, it, when it's impossible to, to get any peace between the two of you, go, go by yourself and cast the devil off of you. He'll jump on marriages, mess you up. You have to remember that Jesus in Luke 4, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he goes through the things to open the eyes of the blind, set at liberty those who are bruised and to preach deliverance to the captives. A lot of your deliverance comes through preaching, not through personal demon casting out. Preaching delivers you. You need to be under some preaching quite often. Preaching deliverance to the captives. You'll get free. Like in the preaching tonight, some of you could have heard some things and said, okay, that's it. I'm done with that. That's it. No more demonic stuff. That's it. Flesh, I'm going to rule you. Some of you thought, you're right, I need to fast a little bit. No dinner tonight for you. If you thought that, no dinner tonight. You start tonight. Your flesh, says, your flesh says, you can start tomorrow. <laughs> Why well, do it tonight when you can do it tomorrow? And your spirit says, no, that's the problem. You never let me. <clears throat> praise the Lord. Um, praise the Lord. All right. Well, we're going to go through some fun stuff next time. <clears throat> but that's it for tonight. We delight after the law of God, after the inward man. You're going to have to go uh, get quiet with God. You know, we call it, 
I haven't really used this term a lot in my preaching, but uh, have a devotion time. All that means is a time to devote to God. That's all it means. It's not a scriptural word. Uh, uh, you need some quiet time with God all the time. Every day, you need a quiet time. And in that quiet time, you need to do several things. I'm not going to go through it all, but you need to get in touch inside your spirit. You need to recognize God's in me. Greater is he that's in me. I'm going to live my life from my spirit today. I'm going to follow the spirit. I'm going to live my life from the spirit. I'm not going to be moved in the flesh. Circumstances aren't going to rile me up. I'm going to live from the inward man. I'm created in righteousness and holiness. I'm full of God, God, his spirit, his word. I'm strong in the spirit, giving glory to God. I have spiritual understanding and spiritual wisdom. All the eyes of my understanding are enlightened. I'm going to live from my spirit, man. My faith comes from my spirit. So the things I say today are going to happen. Didn't take long, did it? Didn't take long. I'm getting in touch with my inner man. This is where it all comes from. Out of the heart flow the issues of life or the forces of life come from your spirit. If nothing good's happening on the outside, it's because your spirit's not giving it. Your heart, all the good stuff comes from inside. So you got to spend a little time to get in touch down in there with the Lord. Recognize that he's in me. I'm in him. We're united together in one. I'm going to live with him all day. Make my decisions based on what I know to be right. That's the law of God after the inward man. Isn't that exciting? Thank you for joining Pastors Chaz and Joni today from Houston Faith Church. If you're looking for a good home church in Houston, Texas, we'd like to invite you to be our guest anytime. What you'll find is that Houston Faith Church is highly committed to the Word of God, the love of God, and the Spirit-filled life and ministry that Jesus expects. We know that everyone wants to make a difference in this life and that the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ is the main thing for all of us. You'll find your purpose here and grow strong in faith at Houston Faith Church. Find more faith-building resources on our YouTube channel or subscribe to our free audio podcast. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. See you soon.